It was the fall of 1980. My academic year, senior year, 1980, 1981, that was going to be the year of my life. I was so excited about it because that year I was hyper-focused. I needed to get a Division I four-year full-ride track scholarship. I was a miler, I was an 800-meter runner, and I had a whole lot of work to do. It was doable, but it was going to be tough. So I threw myself into it to the point of being obsessed. Things were going so well until the middle of October. When I came home one day, I opened up the mailbox, and in the mailbox was a letter from the United States Army. And I looked at it, and it said, be all you can be. And, and, and in the letter was a brochure, and the brochure had this like Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando-looking dude, and he's like, ah. And I'm going, I want to be like that when I grow up, and I'm growing up in just a few months. So I talked my mom and dad into signing on the dotted line. I was underage. I'd be 17 when I showed up at basic training. I would have only shaved three times in my life. And so they said, yeah, let's do this. And just a couple of days after high school graduation, I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, and started my 28-year military career. Here's what's interesting about that. I wasn't a Christian at the time, yet God was in the details, and God was writing a story. Fast forward a handful of years, I'm a, a lieutenant in 1st Armored Division in Ansbach, Germany, this kid from Kansas, that's me, and I meet this amazing, beautiful soldier named Linda Jacobson, and she's from Bellingham, Washington. Well, I fall head over heels in love. It takes me several months to get up the guts to ask this soldier out on a date, and so finally, I get up the guts and she says yes. So I'm thinking that my luck is going well. So what do you do when your luck's going well? You ask her to marry her on your first date. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go well. In fact, her, her exact words after her, you know, 30 seconds of shock was, you're an idiot. But she continued to go out with me. So we kept on dating and kept on dating and finally we got married. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Here's the deal though. I wasn't a Christian at a time, at that time, yet God was in the details and God was writing a story. Fast forward 20 more years, we're stationed overseas again as a family, and I, and I told Linda, I'm like, Hannah, I really feel God stirring in my heart to become a pastor. Now, I was a military intelligence officer, I wasn't a chaplain, so that's kind of a weird thing. And so she said, well, let's, let's pray about it, let's see what God says. And, and sure enough, uh, we discerned that God was calling me into full-time vocational ministry, so I put in my retire, re retirement paperwork, retired out of the army, and I became a pastor. The rest is history, I guess. But here's the deal. I was a Christian at that time, but I still didn't realize that God was in the details and that God was writing a story. Theology is the study of God. And when it comes to matters of, th of faith, I've got just a handful of things that I'm close-fisted on. I will not budge whatsoever. Other things are open-handed. We can talk about those things, but one of those things that I'm close-fisted on is that God is sovereign that through Jesus Christ, He holds all things together, not only around the world, but in our lives. I believe that God did not, you know, just start the world spinning, step back and say, ooh, sucks to be you guys, see you when I come back again. I believe in my heart and soul that nothing lands in our laps, the good, the bad, or the ugly, without going through the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. Nothing, nothing happens by coincidence such as what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. God is in the details of our lives. 
God is writing a story. God is writing a story for the whole world, and it's amazing. And there's details in that. He's writing a story for each one of us, and that story is for us to reflect His glory. The story is for His glory, not for our glory. Well, I'm excited about today's teaching because here's the thing that we're going to be doing today. Today, we're going to be looking at probably what I consider the greatest meal on that side of the cross as we hit week eight of our series called Meals with Jesus. It's in this series in which we're looking at different conversations Jesus has around food or or that he has around the master's table. And today we're going to look at that last supper, that last Passover meal. But here's the deal. The college professor has to come out in me and we're going to be interactive and I'm going to ask you guys to repeat some words. And the reason why, as my old Russian professor would say, repetition is the mother of of learning. Pafterenia matuchenia. It's the mother of learning, so we're going to repeat some words because there are a lot of details. Now, for those of you who are like, oh my gosh, why did I come? I should have stayed at home and watched the NCAA tournament. That's okay. We're going to get through this together, but in the end, it's all going to connect, and it's going to be really cool. Remember our main thought that God is in the details. God is writing a story. Nothing happens by coincidence. God is sovereign. We're going to be hanging out in four main chunks of Scripture. Exodus chapter 12, Leviticus chapter 23, freak not, it's only five verses out of Leviticus. Then we're going to roll into the New Testament, and the New Testament will be in Luke chapter 19 and Luke chapter 22. Guys, this is a cool teaching, and it's going to take me a few minutes to get it all set up, but I need your patience and grace on that. Okay, so having said that, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 12. Let me set the scene for what's going on. We did an entire series last summer on Moses. So for those of you who are here, who are watching online, a lot of this is going to sound familiar. Most of us have heard this story. We've seen the Ten Commandments, the Cecil B. DeMille, the Charlton Heston. So go with me back to that time. We go back 2,000 plus years ago. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies. He's buried. He is resurrected. The most important event in the history of mankind. I never want to skip over that. Now go 1,500 years before that. Moses is 80 years old. He's a shepherd in the Midian Desert, and he's walking through the Midian Desert, and of course there's this burning bush, and God speaks through the burning bush to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to go down to Pharaoh. My people have been enslaved for 400 years. You're the man. I've chosen you to be the man. Go down and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses decides to argue with God, and it just doesn't go well. In the end, God says, listen, I'm sending you. I'll send your big brother Aaron with you, and I'm going to give you a God stick. It's pretty cool. Are are, are you in? And he goes, okay, I'm in. So he and Aaron and the God stick show up. They stand in front of Pharaoh, and, and Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, nope, not doing it. So God sends 10 plagues, each one worse than the one before. And the first nine are pretty rough, and, and Pharaoh's not relenting. So God says, okay, the, the tenth one's going to be tough. And so he gives Moses directions. He gives him, him to, instructions for his people. And he says, tell my chosen people that you are going to select a lamb, you're going to kill it, and then you're going to get the blood of the lamb for each household, and you're going to get a hyssop branch, you're going to dip it in the blood, and you're going to put it on the door frames of your home. And when I go over Egypt, I'm going to take the firstborn son of everyone in Egypt, unless they've got the blood of the lamb on the door. 
and we know the story, and we know how it ends. Uh, that, that happens exactly, and Pharaoh relents, and, and he lets the people go. God pass, passes over all of the Jewish people. And from that point on to this day, the Jewish people would celebrate Passover. They'd sacrifice a lamb. They'd, re- they'd remember their deliverance. Okay, having said that, let's get into Exodus chapter 12. Now, remember our main thought. God is in the details. God is writing a story. There's no coincidence. You guys ready to go? Okay, three of you are. Awesome. <laughs> Here we go. Exodus 12 verses 1 through 5. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month, first month, say first month, first month, awesome, of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, the 10th of this month, what day? 10th, yeah. On the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male. Unblemished means no buck eyes, no buck teeth. It it can't be broken in any way. It can't be bad. (laughs) An unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, so in the Hebrew calendar, here's what happens. The first month of the year is not January. Their first month is Nisan. Nisan, say it with me, Nisan. Nissan, think Nissan Frontier, uh, Nissan Pathfinder, uh, my niece on a plane to come see her favorite uncle who's really humble. <laughs> Nissan. Nissan takes place around our late March, early April time frame. Nissan. So what God says is in Nissan, Nissan, on the 10th of the month, you're going to choose a lamb. It can't be an ugly lamb. It can't have the buck teeth and bug eyes. It's got to be a perfect lamb. And you're going to inspect it for four days. He continues on, verses 6 and 7. You shall keep it until the 14th day. The 14th day, what day? Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Twilight's the end of the day. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So what would happen at that first Passover? They'd recognize something that the lamb is a substitute for someone's life, that in order to be redeemed, big church word, we're going to be talking about it later, but in order to be redeemed, where the, the, uh, to be set free, there has to be a price that something would have to die or someone would have to die. So, test, what month do they kick this off, Passover? Nissan, yeah, okay. On what day do they choose the lamb? How many days are they going to inspect it? Okay, and then on the 14th at twilight, it's, yeah, for the lamb. That's what they would do. And for that first Passover, when they killed the lamb, each household would have, have a lamb. They'd get the hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, put it on the door frames of the home. God would pass over them and they would be saved. Now, so God gives instructions to Moses. And he says, listen, you've got to, to do a Passover meal. And the Passover meal is going to be very, very specific. Stick down to verse 11. He says, Now you shall eat at the Passover meal in this manner, with your loins girded. That means with your yoga pants on, with your running suit on. You're ready to go. You've got to be ready to go fast. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is what? What is it? 
Lord's Passover. Yeah, the Lord's Passover. Come on, you can say it with gusto. The Lord's Passover. Okay, so on this first Passover only, the Hebrew nation would eat it standing up. After that, they would only have one person standing up and tell the Exodus story. We'll get into that in a couple more minutes. Now, they would do this year after year after year with a handful of exceptions. They would have Passover, and then they would also have six other celebrations, 19 days a year in which God says, I'm going to show up, and I expect you to show up. Okay, let's keep on going now. Let's go over to Leviticus chapter 23. As I said, freak not. We got five verses and we'll get through it. Leviticus 23 verses 1 and 2. This is going to play out at the Last Supper in a really cool way. The Lord spoke again to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, the Lord's appointed times, his appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Some of your translations say sacred assemblies, convocations. Circle it, put stars around it at home. If you're watching online, shoot off a confetti cannon. This is a very important word to come back to. He says, my appointed times are these. So God says you're going to have seven festivals, and I expect you to be there. The festivals are God's appointments. God's appointed times are his appointments. So God sets up an appointment every single year, and he expects the Israelites to be there. So I know a whole lot of you have been getting your COVID shots, or you've been trying to get your COVID shots, and the problem is you can't get an appointment. And so finally, when you get an appointment, you expect that, that that person with that harpoon that's like this long that we watch getting stabbed into people's arms 400 times a day on the news, you're, you're expecting that they're going to be there. And if you're a medical professional, you're expecting that the person who sets the appointment is going to be there. Well, God does the same thing. He says, I've got an appointment for you seven times a year, 19 days a year. I want you to be at this place. Look at the last few verses to set all of this up for Jesus' meal with his disciples. Verses 4 through 6, Leviticus 23. These festivals are the appointed times of the Lord, holy convocations, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. In the first month, which is? Nisan. On the 14th day of the month at twilight, that's the end of the day, is the Lord's Passover. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there's a feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days, you're going to party like it's 99, and you're going to eat unleavened bread. So God sets up this appointment, and here's what would happen. The first Passover, uh, they do the first Passover, they put the blood on the doors, and then year after year after year after year, they do these Passovers. They prepare, they, they prepare the meal on the given day, but then they also prepare the house. They select the lamb on the 10th, and between the 10th and the 14th, they're doing a whole lot of things. And one of the things is cleaning up the house, getting rid of all the leaven in the house. Leaven is yeast. And in, in the Bible, yeast usually stands, not always, but usually represents sin. So on that first Passover, God says you're going to make unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, you can make it fast. It's made out of water. It's made out of flour. It, it, it looks flat as a pancake. You can cook it fast. In fact, it looks something like this. It's just a, sm a thin piece of bread. You can make it fast. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to make this unleavened bread. Okay, now our last point of geekdom before we roll into our story. Remember when I go into the, the New Testament, we find a word, and I say, hey, we've got to Greek out and geek out because our English language a lot of times doesn't really wrap its arms around what's going on. In the Old Testament, I like to say Hebrew. Who knew? So there's a, that word convocation. Convocation is extremely important. When you look at the word convocation in Hebrew, it's mikra, mikra. Say it with me, mikra. Think, I'm Connor Mikra of the clan Mikra, and I got a new kilt and I'm ready for battle. 
Okay, maybe not. Won't make it into the 11 o'clock service or not. So, makra, makra, it means dress rehearsal. Think about this. For 1,500 years, God says, I want you to have these holy convocations, these sacred assemblies, holy dress rehearsals. What do you do a dress rehearsal for? If you are in a play, you're going to practice, 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 then you do the dress rehearsal, then you go to the real thing. All of these are dress rehearsals for the real thing. Convocations are dress rehearsals that point to the main act, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. Okay, so here we go. Let's do the test. In the month of, on the 10th of the month, they're going to choose a lamb. They're going to inspect it how many days? And then on what day do they? The 14th. And during that time, they're going to clean the house. They're going to get all of the leaven out of the house, all of the yeast out of the house. One last thing, one last thing, the Passover meal. The Passover meal is a reminder of the past. It's fellowship in the present, and it's a hope for the future. It's, it's a reminder of the past where they would tell the Exodus story over and over and over. They didn't want anyone to forget what God had done. It's fellowship in the present. Up to this, to this day, if you have a Jewish friend who invites you over to a, a Seder meal is what it's called today, uh, the Passover meal, it's amazing. It's a, it's a time of fellowship, but then it's hope for the future, hope for the coming Messiah. Okay, you guys ready to connect some dots? Yeah, okay, so here we go. Fast forward now 1,500 years. Jesus is wrapping up his three-year earthly ministry, and just a handful of days, he's going to go to the cross. He's coming into town on Nisan 9 or Nisan 10. Biblical scholars have been doing this forever. I personally think it's Nisan 10, but I don't get a vote in it. Nisan 9 or 10, hmm, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's coming into Jerusalem for a sacrifice. Let's look at this. Go to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. Remember our main thought. God is in the details. God is writing a story. There's no coincidences. God is sovereign. Here we go. As soon as he, Jesus, was approaching Jerusalem, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What they're doing is they're singing a, a, a part of Psalm 118. It's known as the Hallel. It's where we get the word hallelujah, which means hallel, praise, luyah, praise to God. So they're singing that as Jesus comes in. That's important. Now remember, God's writing a story. He's fulfilling prophecy 500 years before this. A guy named Zechariah, he's a, a, a prophet. Zechariah says, your, your king will come into Jerusalem riding on the back of a colt, on the back in the words of the great theologian Shrek, a donkey. So he's going to come into town riding on the back of a donkey. This is 500 years prophecy being fulfilled. Okay, so let's talk about Jerusalem because the people are shouting, the people are praising. Jerusalem is on fire in a good way at this time. It's the Passover celebration, and everybody comes to Jerusalem because that's where the temple is. Okay, when, when there's no big celebration going on, Jerusalem has like 600,000 people in it in Jesus' time. But at Passover, it would swell to more than two and a half million people. It was estimated that 250,000 sheep were sacrificed in those times and at that time. A quarter of a million sheep. So 
Jesus comes into town. The town is, is really excited. Everybody's excited about a lot of things, and you can hear the sheep. I don't know what do they do. They, they bad, they neigh, whatever they're doing, they're talking. They're like, nah! you can hear it all the way up into Jerusalem because the, the sheep are all in Bethlehem. Oh, wait a second, wait a second. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's coming in on Nisan 9 or 10. Uh, he was born in, oh, Bethlehem. Oh, it's all coincidence. So all the sheep are in Bethlehem. They're going to be herded up to the temple. They'll be sacrificed, and they'll start the, the, the celebrations. But here's the thing. It's Nisan 10 now, and on Nisan 10, the high priest, that's the top dog of all Judaism, he is in the temple on Nisan 10, and he's singing the Hallel, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the high priest, the representative of the Jewish people to God, he chooses a symbolic lamb because his knife would get pretty dull killing a quarter of a million sheep. He chooses a symbolic lamb, and he's going to monitor that lamb. He's going to be inspected for four days. Now remember, all of these years have been makras. They've been dress rehearsals. Now it's the real thing. So Jesus comes into town. The next day, what's, what's, what are you going to do if you're a rabbi? He's, he's Jewish. He's a rabbi. And you come into town, into Jerusalem. You're going to go to the temple. So he goes to the temple, and he sees something going on, and he gets extremely mad. Skip down to verses 45 and 46. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be, or my, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. So let's talk about what's going on. Jesus comes into the temple, and the Jewish leadership have turned the temple into a circus, into a farmer's market. If you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice, you could buy a pigeon or a dove. And they were selling pigeons and doves as well as sheep and oxen in a part of the temple. And it upset Jesus because, first of all, they're ripping off the poor people. God always says, take care of the poor, the orphans, and the widows. They're charging exorbitant prices for these simple pigeons, for these simple doves. Second thing is, they're making a mess all over the temple, but in a specific area. They would set up this farmer's market in the outer courts of the temple, also known as the court of the Gentiles. Why is that important? Gentiles are non-Jewish people. And it was a place in the temple where you could come in and worship God or learn about God or hear about God. Non-Jewish people couldn't even come in to hear about God because it was a circus. So Jesus is upset. He's flipping tables. And guess what he's doing? He's cleaning leaven out of the house. He's cleaning his father's house before the sacrifice. So fast forward a couple days. He says to Peter and John, I need you guys to go into town. You're gonna, there's a house you're going to go to. You need you to prep the house. I need you to prepare the meal. Okay, now having said all of that, congratulations. We're at the greatest meal on that side of the cross. You guys have been awesome. Here we go. A couple other things, real quick, two more caveats before we roll into Luke chapter 22. A couple other things. First of all, there's great speculation about what Jesus ate at that meal. Some say, no, it was only bread and it was only wine. Others have said, no, it was a full Passover meal. So there's speculation about that. Here's what we're going to do. I, first of all, I always want to say where there's speculation, I got to say this is speculation. The Bible does not say some of the things I'm going to say. However, 
We do know in history and in Jesus' time specifically how they would eat that Passover meal. We know what it would look like. So we're going to overlay the gospel account on what historically would have happened, but it's still speculation. So I want to be clear about that. Second thing is, the Jewish meal, uh, the Jewish Passover meal that they eat today is called a Seder meal, a Seder meal. We're not talking about that. The, the Passover meal they eat today has, has taken on form and meeting over many, many, many years, and we don't have time to go into how it has grown into a little bit more of, a, of uh, uh, more elements and things like that since Jesus' time. We don't have time to go into that. So those two things, understanding that, let's talk about the Passover meal. So here's what would happen. You would have a Passover meal in Jesus' time, and it would have four elements, four elements total. Uh, the four elements, the first batch of element, and every group of elements has a symbol that affects us, a symbol that, that affects the, the Jewish people, a symbol that would, would show Jesus coming alive and jumping out of the Old Testament and into our laps. Okay, so the first, the first grouping is bitter herbs, you'd have bitter herbs, you'd have parsley, and you'd have a, a, a bowl of salt water. The bitter herbs represent the bitterness of being in slavery, 400 years of bondage. The parsley or the celery would represent that hyssop branch that was duck, uh, dipped into the blood for the, the blood to go on the door frames of the home. And then the salt water, the bowl of salt water represents tears, tears shed in slavery, Tears that they couldn't worship God. Tears that they were in bondage. That's the first grouping. Okay, the second element was unleavened bread. We talked a lot about unleavened bread, so that's on the table. Third element is the lamb. The lamb, the sacrifice. There's a sacrifice, and the sacrifice leads to delivery. And then last but not least is wine. And they'd have a lot of wine. It was red wine. And it would be on the table for everybody. Then in front of each person, there would be four cups of wine. And each cup represented a fourfold promise that's going to play out in the Last Supper in a pretty cool way. So that's what's going on. That's what they have. So with all of that going on, the gospel accounts give us a little bit of limited information and hit the high points. Look at Luke 22. Let's look at verses 14 through 18. We're told this, when the hour had come, that means when Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So it's a Passover meal. I think it's more than just some bread and wine. Jesus says it's Passover. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. The disciples had to be freaking out right now. And you may be saying, why? This, I mean, you, we've heard the story so many times. Put yourself in the disciples' sandals. Every single year since they were little boys, they've had their dad or the senior person in their house stand up and recite the Exodus story. It is completely scripted. You never go off script. Yet what we're going to find here is that Jesus is going off script. If you look at the, 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 uh, the John accounts, the, the Gospel of John accounts that Pastor Bob is going to go into next week, you look at the, the, the Gospel of John accounts, um, Jesus gets up in the middle of the meal and he says, hey guys, I'm going to wash your feet. Okay, that would freak out the disciples for a bunch of reasons. First of all, since they could remember you come into the house for the Passover meal and the lowest ranking person in the house is going to wash people's feet. Jesus does it in the middle of the meal. He's off script. You've got a presider who's going to be standing up and telling the whole story. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is reclining at the table and talking about a lot of things going on, things that they're confused about. On top of that, 
You don't have a lamb on the table. Think about this. Maybe there's no lamb on the table because the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is actually at the table. You don't need a lamb when <laughs> he's there. He's off script. And they got to be, as I said, they got to be freaking out, but Jesus consistently went off script, and that should give us hope. Whenever you're going through anything in life or you expect God to be acting a certain way, newsflash, God doesn't have to, have to act the way we want Him to act. He doesn't have to do the things we pray for Him to do because He's at, at a higher vantage point than what we are. And when we're going through that time and we think God's going off script, He is on point. When God is off script, He is on point, and Jesus is on point here. they got to be confused. But hey, there's wine. Wine's available, and it's, it's in front of everybody, and there are four cups of wine in front of each person. Each cup represents a fourfold promise found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So for those of you with your Bibles, your, your, hard, your, your hard copy Bibles, put your thumb in Luke. We're going to come back to it. Go back to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7 because God has four promises for his Jewish people, and he's got four promises for us fulfilled in Jesus, okay? Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, the presider would stand up, and he would would walk through each one of these promises and each one of these cups. Let's look at verse 6. God is saying to Moses, and the presider would say these words, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the first promise is what's called sanctification. A promise of sanctification is represented by the cup of sanctification. Now, it's a big church word, and it means a whole bunch of different things. In this context, it means that God has specifically chosen His people. So the presider would stand up, he'd re recite this, and then they'd lift up the, the, the cup, and they'd drink that cup. Then they move on to the second cup, the second promise, found in the, the next part of Exodus 6, verse 6. The second promise is, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will deliver you from their bondage. Deliver. So the promise is deliverance. The cup is the cup of deliverance. Let's talk about it because here's what would happen. At this time, the presider of the meal, and if, if, if Jesus were following the, the script, he would be the presider of the meal and he'd be talking through all the different plagues. And what would happen is the presider stands up, he's got this cup of deliverance, this cup of, of wine in his hand, and he's talking about each plague. And as he hits each plague, he puts a drop of red wine on the table. It represents blood, blood shed at each, each plague. And so he does that, and he goes through nine of the plagues till he gets to the tenth plague. On the tenth plague, he does two drops, one to represent sacrifice, another to represent deliverance. Hmm, sounds like the Lamb of God who takes, a, takes away the sins of the world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So what they would do is he'd tell the story, they'd eat the bitter herbs, and they'd sing Psalms 113 and 114. There are six psalms that they sing during the dinner, 113 to 118. So they sing those two psalms, and they'd roll on to the third, the, the third cup, which is the third promise. Look at this, last part of verse 6. I will also redeem you, redeem you, redeem you. Such an important word. Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. So the promise is redemption, and the cup is the cup. Of redemption. Let's talk about redemption. As I said earlier, redemption means that to be set free by the payment of a price. 
In the Old Testament, if there was sin, there had to be a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And you may say, well, Kip, that's now that's the Mosaic law. That, that's the law of Moses. Okay, let's go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I always like to think in the Garden of Eden that, that Adam and Eve looked like, uh, you know, Hebrew version, dark-skinned Ken and Barbie. Uh, you know, that they're, they're just perfect, perfect hair, rock-hard abs. Uh, they're just perfect people. They don't smell bad. They don't have bad breath. They don't have, you know, one eyebrow, no neck, none of that stuff. They're Adam and Eve. It's a garden of Eden. Come on. So they're in the garden of Eden and God says, whatever you do, don't eat from that tree. Do you got it? Okay. Yeah. What do we do? Don't eat from the tree. Okay. Don't eat from the tree. You got it? Yes, we got it. And what do they do? God turns around. They eat from the tree. And God's like, come on guys. When they eat from the tree, all hell literally breaks loose on this earth. We have suffering today. It all stems back to that time. Everything that happens that's bad stems back to that time. And what God does that's so amazing is instead of sacrificing them, He has a different sacrifice. Because the cross was never plan B. From the start, God knew that they'd biff it in the garden. And He knew that He would have to send His Son Jesus to the cross. He knew it because He's writing the story. He's involved in all the details. He knew that this would happen. And when they sin in the Garden of Eden, they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. And God is the only one who can truly scatter our shame. We can try so hard to have counselors help us, to, to do all those self-help things, but in the end, only God can truly scatter our shame. So what He does is He sacrifices animals in the Garden. The first deaths that we see aren't of people, it's of animals who are sacrificed to cover their sin, to cover their shame kind of another foreshadowing of Jesus, isn't it? So what, they would, what would happen is they'd break the bread, they'd eat the meal, they'd drink this third cup, and then they'd sing Psalms 115 to 118. But this is where Jesus goes off script on this cup of redemption. He just goes off script. Luke 22, look at verses 19 and 20. And when he, Jesus, had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him. Okay, so he's on the script now. he's breaking the bread. And he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Off script. Okay, now they're eating the meal. Back on script. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten it, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Other gospel accounts say, poured out for the forgiveness of many. What does that sound like? Redemption. He's off script. Totally. He'd lead him into singing Psalms 115. And then they'd move on to the last cup. Exodus 6, verse 7. Fourth promise. Then I will take you, I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So the promise is acceptance, and the symbol is the cup of acceptance, the cup of praise or acceptance. The the disciples are flipping out. They have to be flipping out. As I said, every year for 14 generations, they've had a script and Jesus isn't following it. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. They didn't understand that God was in the details, that God was writing a story, not only for history, but he was going to be writing a story for each one of them. Jesus was showing him this, that it's the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, that chooses them and chooses us. Because he chose us, we can be called children of God. Jesus is the cup of sanctification. It's the blood 
of the Passover lamb, Jesus, who delivers us from our own personal Egypts. He's the cup of deliverance. It's the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus, who redeems us, who goes to the cross and sacrifices the blood shed, the, the price shed, so that we could have this relationship with God, that all the junk in our life could be taken care of. He scatters our shame. He's the cup of redemption. And it's the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, who accepts us right where we are, in the middle of our mess. He's the cup of acceptance. Because of that, we got to give Him praise. It's unbelievable. So they'd eat the meal, they'd sing the Psalms, and then they'd go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Shortly after that, Jesus would be arrested. He would go through six trials. And at the sixth trial, Pontius Pilate, the the representative from Rome, the representative of Caesar, the governor, the prefect of, of Judea, would say, I find nothing wrong with this guy. In other words, he's a lamb without blemish. Guess what day it is? Nisan 14. What happens on Nisan 14? You sacrifice the lamb at twilight. Jesus is slammed up against the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning on Nisan 14. Uh, From 9 until 3, he's on that cross. From noon until 3, it's pitch black in all of Judea. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus bleeds out, and he breathes his last breath, saying these three words, it is finished. Fast forward over the temple. Over the temple, it's Nisan 14, so the high priest has chosen that lamb. He's, it's been monitored for four days, and it is without blemish. And he would grab the lamb, he would take his knife, and he would sacrifice the lamb. And as he sacrifices the lamb, guess what three words he says? It is finished. 1,500 years of mekra. 1,500 years of, con- of convocations, sacred assemblies, dress rehearsals for this point. It's, it, it's no coincidence. God's in the details. God's writing a story. Look at this. For the Hebrew nation, Passover marked a new beginning. And for us as Christ followers with Jesus, Jesus, when we have Jesus in our hearts, we're a new creation. The old is done. The new has come. For the Jewish people, the blood of the lamb over the door frames of their home gave him just life on earth basically a temporary life. However, for us, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, not only do we have this life more abundant, and it doesn't mean an easy life. It doesn't mean rock hard abs and a beautiful car. It means hope in difficult circumstances. We have that as well as eternal life. The Jewish people would understand that without the blood, you'd be condemned and die. And then with Jesus, with us, we understand that with Jesus, His blood covering our sins, we're forgiven and accepted. For the Jewish people, Passover would mark a time to celebrate God's goodness, grace, mercy, and love, and also remember that sacrifice. And then for us, as we come together like we're going to do today to take the Lord's Supper, to take communion, we celebrate God's goodness, grace, mercy, and love, but we commemorate, not celebrate, commemorate His death on the cross because it was ugly. We commemorate that. 
1,500 years of dress rehearsals complete. And you may be saying, Kip, hey, I appreciate that. Thanks for the Bible trivia class. But you know, I'm going through something this past year. Oh, it's been a, a horrible year. It's been so hard. And what's hard for me is I see your faces and I'm just thanking God I get to preach to a live audience. But I know your stories, so many of you have had a year of sheer hell. And I just want to say, if that's you, let me give you some hope. Let me give you some hope. Don't you think if we serve a God that's so good that he's in the details of so many things of history that he could put this together, that he could get into the details of your life, the details of that relationship that's broken, the details of that health issue that happened, the details of the grief you're experiencing. Don't you think God is that good? I do. And he is. We just need to trust him. One of my favorite verses out of the Bible is Ephesians 2, verse 10. And it goes like this, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Guess what? That he prepared for us in advance. That means God's writing a story. But on top of that, that word workmanship, you know, I like to Greek out, geek out. Workmanship in Greek is poema. It's where we get the word poem. Have you ever considered that you are God's poem? God's poem. He's writing this story. Man, I get, I get choked up talking about it because I'm so excited about it. Don't give up on the story. Don't give up on God. He's writing a story through you. And it's a story for his glory. And he's calling you and he's calling me then to share that story wherever we are, in our workplace, at our homes, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are. He's writing that story. But the problem is, some of you are like me. It's like, hey, God, I got the story. I got the story. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll let you write 98%, but I got the story. I'm not going to let go of the pen. You can have 98% of it, but I got this 2% right here. Trust me. If you're doing that, you're going to get a cramp, a writer's cramp. And God said, I simply need you to trust me. Trust me. So as we come into a time of communion, go ahead and get your communion elements together. For those of you watching online, get your communion elements together. Here in Bellingham, uh, you've got those, those crazy, like, sanitized communion cups. Does everybody have one? Does anyone need one? If you need one, raise your hand high. Okay, we got one over here, right up here. Jared, anybody else? Okay, and when you're trying to open it, think really bad syrup out of Burger King. It's, it's crazy to open. But I want you to think about this. As we move into this time of communion, God's writing a story. Right over here, we, uh, right over here, Jared. God is writing a story in your life. He's writing the story, and he wants you to simply let go of the pen and let him write it. Let go of the pen. Let God write it. And as we go through this time, I want you to think, where in my life am I not letting God write my story? Where am I being like Kip and I'm trying to write my own story and that's why Kip has so much anxiety? Where in my life am I hanging on to that pen? Guys, you're going to get writer's cramp. And as we go through this communion, I just want you to ask God, ask him, where am I doing that? And then when he reveals it to you, just open your hands and say, I release it to you. 
I release it to you. Some of you do not know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And if that's you, you're trying to write your own story, you can't do it. The ending is not going to be good. And all you need to simply do is say, Jesus, I trust you. I can't write my own story. You are God. I trust in you, and I want to walk with you. And then you start that lifelong journey, and you release. I trust you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took that unleavened bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. So when you get together, year after year, week after week, when you get together, you take this bread and you take it and eat. It is my body broken for you. And then he took that cup of redemption. He said, this is my blood. It's poured for you. It's for the forgiveness of many sins. I've redeemed you. When you take this bread, when you drink this cup, you do it in remembrance of me. Oh, Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. Oh, my goodness, you are so good to us. We love you so much. And we thank you that you are our cup of sanctification, our cup of deliverance. You're our cup of redemption, and we praise you that we're accepted in you. We thank you, and we praise you. God, we drop the pen. You're writing the story. Help us reflect you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.